This Week in Oklahoma Politics on KOSU is sponsored by the State Chamber of Oklahoma. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. A report shows Oklahoma's official death toll from COVID-19 might be off by 2,500 from numbers at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. While data from the State Department of Health on Monday put the total at fewer than 4,500, the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics was reporting nearly 7,000. Ryan, why this discrepancy? Well, you know, the, the state has given you know several reasons for the discrepancy, you know, one of which is that it's taking them longer to verify that these deaths have actually occurred from COVID-19, which I think has concerns some in the medical community because you know generally whenever a doctor puts down a cause of death on a death certificate that's just taken as fact and so that's what the CDC has been doing whenever they're recording these numbers and the state has been accused of of slowing this down to potentially suppress the the awful impact that covid-19 has had in Oklahoma that's a, that's a pretty serious political charge that that would be leveled against the state of Oklahoma and I, I don't I don't know that there's anything that backs that up just yet but whenever you're seeing numbers reported as of this Monday in terms of deaths that refer to deaths that occurred back in January you know I, I think that it does if, if anything it should give all of us some pause when we're, when we think about you know looking at these numbers that we're seeing coming out of the state as a contemporaneous reflection of where we are right now in terms of the pandemic I, I, all of us, you know, we, we can see the, the drops all across the country right here in Oklahoma as more and more Oklahomans have, you know, some sort of, you know, either antibody resistance or vaccination resistance. Oklahoma has you know, really been one of the, the best states in terms of per capita delivery of vaccines to its population. And so I think the numbers now are somewhere over half of all Oklahomans, either through antibodies or, or some level of vaccination, uh, have protection against COVID-19. And that's great. We're starting to see that show up in numbers. But it is, we, we still are in, in the middle of a, a pandemic and with, with new strains and new variants coming on the horizon and the potential for new pandemics in the future, it's important that the state you know, gets this right so that people can have confidence in these numbers and policymakers can plan around them. Neva. Well, and I think the, the intent is certainly to get the numbers correct, but I think as we continue to read and hear more information coming out, we've got a situation where the effort has been made to concentrate on patient care ahead of filling out uh, some of these reports, not to say that they don't get done, but when we look at vital records in particular, these death certificates, I mean, they're really they're really built mostly for the legal system and not necessarily for infectious disease and investigations or what we're dealing with now in trying to track these these covid death numbers. So, I think I mean when you have the the state the state's involvement, you have CDC, I mean normally physicians or medical examiners in Oklahoma would fill out a death certificate that would go to the CDC, the CDC would process it, they would send it back with a preliminary report. It then would go through the health department's acute disease disease service, I think the they call it to check the further check the report. So there's a lengthy process here. And in all of this, I think Oklahoma, as with I'm certain all states, are working to uh, get these numbers to to come together. And I think the stark difference, the, this 2,500 undercount, I think everyone has has said 
that there was no effort to minimize any any of the accounts, but rather just to make sure that it's the it's the age old adage of speed versus accuracy. It's trying to bring all of this together, and it's much more complex than I think just you know extracting a single number on a daily or weekly basis, like oftentimes we you know may on the surface expect it to be. Well, and you know, you know, epidemiologists are not used to dealing with this. You know, certainly not in the United States. This is, you know, really our, the first you know pandemic in, in a century. You know, that that's been on our doorstep. Well, I say that the first pandemic, you know, since HIV/AIDS that began in the the 1980s, but then the uh, the flu from the from 1918. And so we're not used to dealing with these numbers. And you know, everyone I think gives people the you know, are, you know needs to be giving some of these experts uh, some benefit of the doubt in terms of you know the the accuracy of this and, and their best intents. Part of this, I think, is wrapped up in the fact that COVID, like everything else, has become politicized over the last year, and you know we're we're seeing you know we're trying to read possible political motivations into these actions, and I think that that's really unfortunate, especially when we're we're talking about numbers that. You know, even even if you look at Oklahoma's numbers versus the CDC numbers, we're talking about enormous loss for the people of Oklahoma. I mean, even just looking at the Oklahoma numbers, you know, we're looking at you know losing more people than are in the entire town of Wewoka, Oklahoma. You know, that's I mean, an, an entire town plus some wiped off the map in terms of the the scale of of loss that Oklahoma is dealing with. So it, it's it's terrible. We're not over this yet, and you know, there all of this I think should be looked at is how we can learn moving forward, because unfortunately, I doubt this will be the first time that the state is in this situation. Governor Stitt says Oklahoma will get treated unfairly by President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus package. Stitt says Stitt and 21 other governors, all but one, all of, but one of them were Republicans, released the joint statement earlier this week. Neva, what is the problem they're seeing with the, the measure? Well, I mean, the problem they're seeing is that that there are 33 states that stand to lose funding under this current proposal. And basically uh, what they're saying is that that states headed by Democrat governors are, are going to get more than than states that are led by Republican governors. And that there is, uh, in their estimation, what they have said is that states are punished that have kept their workers actually working during the pandemic. And of course, you know, we know in Oklahoma, it the state was one of the first to reopen the economy back the last year, reaching the, the third stage by early summer. So the unemployment rate went down. And these are the these are the factors that now they are challenging the Biden administration and, and Congress in this conversation with this one point nine trillion stimulus bill that uh, that the House has passed and sent over to the Senate the last weekend. And it, it, it's going to be interesting to see because we're talking, I mean, with $220 billion in this, in this bill for states, territories, and tribal governments. So there's a lot of money, a lot of money on the table. And I think every state is going to fight for their fair share. In this instance, I think we've uh, seen the uh, 21 Republican governors, the one Democrat governor, tee it up and start this conversation, challenge much of the, speci- much of the specifics of this 590 two-page bill that is outlining how the 1.9 trillion stimulus would be would be disseminated if in fact it passes the Senate and moves to the president's desk for signature. Ryan. 
It's it's an odd position, I think, for Governor Stitt and other Republican governors to be in right now, where they're complaining about receiving fewer funds in the uh, the COVID relief bill when their federal counterparts in Congress are the primary reason that we're seeing a much smaller stimulus bill than than we otherwise would. I think that if 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 Democrats felt that that they could pass the kind of stimulus COVID stimulus bill that they want right now, we'd probably see and. And, and to be fair, there, there are some moderate Democrats out there that, that are impediments to this as well, that have, that have joined with Republicans and, and have become impediments to a larger stimulus package as well. But, you know, everything from, you know, larger individual payments to, to increased unemployment benefits, you know, those are those are things that Republicans have largely said are a bailout to states. And, and you see their, again, Governor Stitt's federal counterparts up fighting against. So it's strange to see Republican governors out there saying we're not getting enough when their federal colleagues are, are saying that you know states are getting too much, that everyone's getting too much in this. And I think that congressional Democrats and, and the Biden administration are, are in a position right now of having to try to target that relief where they believe that it's needed uh, most. And so even on top of the, you know, trying to target it to states' economies that that are suffering from higher unemployment rates, I mean, we see also, you know, targeted efforts to lift up some of the hardest hit industries, uh, everything from airlines to, to tourism to, to restaurants. I mean, those are those are some of the hardest hit industries that we've seen coming out of COVID and you know, trying to lift those up. Is is unemployment a perfect measure to, to delivering aid? Absolutely not. But I think that whenever the federal government's trying to figure out how to allocate a portion of state aid, because this isn't all of the state aid, some of the state aid is going to be across the board and it's not going to matter you know, what your unemployment rate is. It's going to be based upon your population. And that's, you know, that that's going to be the measure. That was the measure in the, the, the prior stimulus packages. But this does take a large chunk of money and tries to target it to those states that are experiencing highest, the highest, the the highest persistent unemployment numbers. And again, is that is that a perfect measure? Of, of course not, but I, I do think that it's an effort. I don't think it's a political hit on Republican governors that opened up early or or you know resisted mask mandates. I don't think that that's the case at all. I think it's a good faith effort to try to target need where it's needed most. Republican lawmakers are pushing legislation curbing powers given to Stitt last year during an emergency. They say the bills strengthen the state's checks and balances and prevent the governor from violating Oklahomans' rights, regardless of the circumstances. Ryan, how will this impact what the governor has done over the past year? Well, it's interesting in, in terms of the larger conversation around the separation of powers, I almost said separation of church and state. You can tell, yeah, I'm not at the ACLU anymore, but but old habits die hard. I've been separation of powers <laughs> issue that that's you know swirling around the Capitol and has been front and center since Governor Stitt was was uh, as the, the governor of the state of Oklahoma and he began an effort to try to bring more power to the executive branch. You know, this is really talking about the this is really talking about the the emergency powers that the governor has exercised over the trajectory of the pandemic and everything from limiting his ability to to extend to extend the emergency declarations beyond 30 days and you know, requiring legislative input on that. I, you know, I do think that legislative oversight is incredibly important when we're thinking about the emergency here. And we've seen with the Legislative Office of uh, Fiscal Transp- uh, Transparency, the LOFT, you know, their their report has you know found a lot of uh, what they what they describe as mismanagement of COVID dollars and and emergency use dollars, either from the state or from the federal government, but. Whenever you need to act quick and you're in an emergency like this, it, it's hard to get the legislature to move on something, especially when they're not in session. I think that this misses the, the more important conversation about 
the governor's executive powers when we're not in a state of emergency. You know, the 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 ability that Governor Stitt now has to hire and fire board members from multiple state agencies and his his ability to use the power of the executive to influence the outcomes of, of agency decisions in a way that no governor has ever had in the past. I think that that's, that's you know, the bigger conversation that that ultimately needs to ha- happen. And I, you know, House floor leader John Eccles had said that, you know, and he's and he's largely said, you know, leader Eccles has largely said that he's okay with these powers that have been given to the governor. But he said, you know, we need to look at these questions, not as, you know, are we limiting Governor Stitt, but really uh, limiting the governor, because Governor Stitt's only going to be in an office for a certain period of time. And this is really about the office of the governor, the office of the executive in the state of Oklahoma, and how much power they should have. So these these questions, I, I, I doubt that they ultimately become law. And if they do hit the governor's desk, you'll probably veto them. And you're going to set up a situation where there's going to have to be a veto override attempt. And and frankly, you know that that kind of acrimony is something that legislators and the governor probably want to avoid as much as possible this session, especially when they've got other flashpoints on the horizon, like managed care and other issues that that are going to create you know real loggerheads at the state capitol. Neva. Well, and things like managed care. I mean, we've got until the end of May, and I think we'll we'll be talking about that probably <laughs> right. for that length of time. But in this instance, I think what we're seeing is a trend that's not unique to Oklahoma. I mean, there's at least a half a dozen states that are already out there pushing legislation that in some measure would strip governors of, of emergency powers. And, and I think we're not surprised to see this coming out of a year of a pandemic and all that all that that has entailed particularly from the from the governing side and i think with the with the instance of oklahoma you're right, Ryan. We've talked about it many times. So the fact that that the Republican legislature has expanded the ability and the powers of of the of the governor of Oklahoma, but with that now we see this this tension between between the state's political you know political systems and this check and balance conversation of what should be prevented or what should be allowed and where does that. To come in in terms of Oklahomans' rights, uh, regardless of the circumstances, and and there's going to be debate forever. I mean, I think relative to some of the actions that have been taken. I mean, as we remember, the governor early on, I mean, went so far as to uh, prohibit the gatherings of ten or more people, limit limits on public and social gatherings, uh, the temporary imposed eleven. 11 o'clock curfew on the bars and restaurants. I mean, you know, it's been an ever-evolving uh, series of, of events and also the actions that the, that the governor's taken. Much, many of these actions that uh, have been as unpopular with his Republican, uh, with his Republicans in the legislature as with the, with the public at large. So I think you're right. Whether this really uh, makes it through the long process and becomes law or whether this is just an opportunity to have this dialogue, to express these concerns, to talk about not only the impact and what has happened in this instant, but look at it from the longer perspective of what happens in the next in the next emergency situation, whomever the governor is. The state house passes a bill to put limits on abortion. HB 1904 now heading to the Senate restricts the practice only to board certified obstetricians and gynecologists. Neva, how will this cut down on the number of abortions in the state? Well, I think I, I think that the give and take on this is that as as Representative Rowe, the author of the bill, said, I mean, it is about the 
the fact in her estimation that between 2012 and 2019, there were 96,000 abortions performed in Oklahoma. And while people, the opponents argued about how many, how many counties did not have OBGYNs and all of that, the bottom line to this is it is about, it is a pro-life bill. It is a bill that passed uh, the House on a, on a party line vote. And I think it is reflective of where these, uh, the majority, the 80 that voted in favor, the 19 that, that opposed, feel very strongly that this type of measure is something that their constituents back home support, want, and hope will pass the legislature and be signed by the governor. Ryan. Well, you know, these these trap laws aren't anything new. And a, a trap law is a targeted restriction against an abortion provider. Their their main goal is to make it harder for, for people to access abortions in, in whatever jurisdiction they're passed in. And this is, you know, one one type of them. There are there are a handful of different types of, of trap laws out there, and, and they are often, you know, disguised as efforts to improve healthcare outcomes. But whenever you talk to actual people in healthcare, you know, not not lawmakers, not politicians, but but actual doctors. You know, people that that provide women's health care and reproductive health care, and you know, they, they'll tell you these things don't do anything but to improve healthcare outcomes. They they ignore the fact that abortion is a very safe medical procedure. It's actually safer than giving childbirth. And when we look at you know the the efforts that we've seen in the state legislature over the years, if they've done anything, they've made abortion a more dangerous procedure. They've they've tried to make it harder for, for people to access medicated abortions where I think somewhere around you know 30% of abortions right now are you know where they're they're given um, a person's given a pill that they can take or, or a regimen of pills and, and often they can do it at their own home under you know sometimes under the supervision of a physician. But you know the state of Oklahoma has continually tried to make it harder for people to access abortion. And by doing that, they've made it more dangerous. And they've, they've put a lot of people in a situation where the government is making critical healthcare decisions on their behalf. You know, Representative, there were there were so many great debates and I, I have against this bill and I, I've watched lawmakers and I've had the privilege of standing next to lawmakers debating these things, folks from everybody from Opio Ture to, to Representative Jeannie McDaniel, some of the, the real giants in and defending reproductive freedom over the years. And I'll tell you what, even though there were, so, there were a lot of great debates earlier this week, the one that really stood out to me was my friend, Representative Cindy Munson. Representative Munson got up and a very personal account of her medical history, her reproductive healthcare history, and, and what that's like for her. And I think that it probably made a lot of her colleagues on the floor uncomfortable to, to hear a woman stand up on the House floor and talk about her menstrual cycle. And, and what that means for her and the complications that she's had with that over her lifetime. But that's what, if we, if we strip all of this back, that's what it is. If they're, if they're uncomfortable with that, it's because they should be. These, these are private healthcare matters that, that the people of Oklahoma and, and women in Oklahoma are entirely capable of making in consultation with their physicians. And instead, what we see is, you know, continuing pandering to a particular part of the Republican electorate. And, and even that doesn't get all of the pro-life votes. I, you know, I think that we're beginning to see a growing movement of abortion abolitionists who look at trap laws as 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 not as not uh, going far enough, and so you know Republicans are, I think, trying to appease a part of their constituents, and they, they may still do that, but that constituency is is beginning to become more extreme. Uh, and at some point, Republicans are either going to have to catch up, or they're going to have to realize that abortion is a medical procedure and it should be treated like any other medical procedure in the state of Oklahoma. I think it's important though that that House Bill nineteen oh four. I mean, for 
for the listeners to understand that this bill basically said this, it protected women undergoing the procedure. I mean, by by limiting the providers to board certified uh, obstetricians and gynecologists. I mean, that was what we're talking about with the with this bill that passed this week in the house so i mean we can have all of these other kind of ancillary you know conversations and debates on on the larger subject of of abortion but this this had a very specific a very specific point and it was to in the estimation of uh, representative Rowe, it was to make it where women would be better protected by under if they underwent a procedure by having to uh, have the procedure provided by OBGYN. I do want to ask for though for a, for a pro-life movement for a group that really wants to have healthy babies born in Oklahoma to say that only 27 of the state's 77 counties have OBGYNs is that not the biggest should that not be the biggest concern for the party? I mean that that's well, a I, huge go ahead Neva. No, go ahead, Brian. I, I, that is a huge takeaway. I mean, we're, we are we do see a situation, and I think that that speaks to the larger issue, in particular, of rural health care in the state of Oklahoma and access to to reproductive health care up and down the line. You know, for people that that want to have babies, and for those that have made a decision for for whatever reason that they need to terminate a pregnancy, and that that's in the best interest of them and their families and and, cons- and their and their their health care in consultation with their physicians, but. You know, we, we do have a real crisis in rural healthcare in the state of Oklahoma, where if you are somebody that needs to see an OBGYN, oftentimes you're driving you know, hour plus uh, one way to get there. And that's that's really unacceptable. Neva. Well, I mean, the the need for more physicians of, of every practice uh, throughout the state of Oklahoma is something that has been talked about for a long time. Legislative measures have been put into place to incentivize young doctors going into their fields of practice to go to rural Oklahoma to set up a practice and serve those communities. But that is a conversation that goes to the to the core of every medical need and service, not just to this one this one particular instance that we're talking about right now. The state house also passed a bill this week to alter the initiative petition process. House bill 1767 requires petitions increasing the cost of state government include a clear statement concerning additional funding. Ryan, how will this impact the process of petitions? Well, I think it's, you know, first and foremost, it's going to cost the state more money in the administration of the initiative petition process. I think that, you know, these are you know, we, we've seen a number of we've seen a number of bills filed this session that would outright make initiative petitions impossible. You know, this is this is one that wouldn't make initiative future initiative petitions impossible, but but it would. It is it is a, a real direct attack against state question eight hundred two, and you know, state question eight hundred two, the the state question that expanded Medicaid in the state of Oklahoma, it, it, enormously unpopular with with legislators, Republican legislators at the state capitol. And I think that they feel slighted that the voters finally did what the legislature wouldn't do over 10 years, which was to take up the issue of expanding Medicaid. And so we've seen a number of attacks on the initiative petition process. We saw that even before Medicaid ex- uh, expansion happened with state question 802. But you know, so this this would require a printing of, of how much funding this would cost from the state. There's no there's no direction in here. I think Representative Andy Fugate pointed out in debate that there's no direction in the bill as to who would prepare that analysis of how much this would cost state or local governments to implement this thing. And there's not a corollary in there that says that 
that they have to publish an analysis of how much revenue a state question would generate. I mean, you look back to state question 788, you know, we're looking at millions and millions and millions of dollars coming into the state of Oklahoma as a result of an incredibly successful and still very new, but an incredibly successful medical marijuana program. And so I, I think if you want to do something like this, it should be it should be both ways. And, you know, there, there needs to be some direction of who's going to prepare this and at whose expense. Neva. Well, I mean, Representative Eric Roberts, the author of this bill, I mean, he he explained his motivation is is simply this, that he he wanted to make sure that voters are fully informed about the potential cost. And, and in the instance of 802, a Medicaid expansion, what that cost is, not just for one year, but for ongoing years. And his point, you know, his point was that, that there was, in his, his estimation, based on his own constituents, that, that there was not a clear understanding of what the implications were. And when we look at that vote, I mean, let's remember, it was 50.49% of the vote that passed 802. It was it was extremely extremely evenly split in the state. The the state question did pass, and now I think it has lent to this conversation of making sure that that the voters are clearly and clearly understand and are informed about what these uh, ballot measures might be. These state questions. In this instance, I mean, what we saw happen again on a party line vote was that it passed. It goes to the Senate, but the title is off, which basically means it's still a work in progress. I think we're going to see a lot more, a lot more uh, tweaking and a lot more go on in terms of crafting this bill. At the end of it, we'll see if it's if it's a product that everyone can, everyone, a majority can live with and and bring into bring into law this year. But it does lend to the larger conversation about uh, state questions, and particularly those that are enshrined in the Constitution that make it very difficult to make any changes, certainly restricts the legislature from making any changes without going back to, to a vote of the people. And I think that is something that voters need to be very aware of when they look at state questions, regardless of the topic. Aneva and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.